Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 101. On today's episode, we're talking about women in the academy with Dr. Beth Allison Barr and Dr. Lyneth Miller-Renberg. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. Dr. Barr is Professor of History and Associate Dean of Graduate Studies at Baylor University and the author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, published by Brazos. And Dr. Renberg is Assistant Professor of History at Anderson University, having completed a PhD at Baylor under the supervision of Dr. Barr. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Barr and Dr. Renberg. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Well, I'm excited about this conversation just among the three of us women uh, who are currently in the academy and two of us are earlier career. And then Dr. Barr, you are well seasoned in the field and have a lot of great uh, success in it as well. Dr. Barr was Dr. Renberg's supervising professor, as I Mm -hmm. said. And so what's really unique about that is while there's more women who are entering into the academy, very few women have actually had the experience of getting their doctorates under a woman, uh, which is something unique to Dr. Renberg. My own doctorate was under a man, so this is an experience that I don't even have. So what I would like to do is start off by asking you both a little bit about your academic journey, when you felt like the academy was where you needed to go and and sort of your calling and vocation, what some specific challenges were for you along the way as you were going through the education process, but also in earlier stages of your career, as well as specific ways that you think that being a woman has been a a contributing factor Mm -hmm. to the kind of work that you do and the kinds of things that you offer to the academy. So I actually worked under a woman also. My PhD advisor at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was Judith Bennett. And so that was um, an experience. You know, it it was a different experience for me because at Baylor, um, I mostly worked with male professors. And so it was something I didn't really think about it at the time. I went to work with Judith because she was doing the work that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to work on ordinary women. And I wanted to work on medieval women. And so, and that's exactly what she did. She was a social historian. And so she was um, fit exactly with my field. So I didn't make the decision because it was a female professor. I made the decision because of the research. Um, But what I did find is that there was a difference being a woman working with a woman. Um, And so that was something that I realized, you know, for on the one hand, I had a very hands-on relationship with Judith. Um, I worked pretty closely with her. Um, I met with her frequently, which is something that I didn't notice happening as often with my students um, working with other professors. So that was, you know, I, I noticed that. Um, I also noticed that she took fewer students. Um, So she only took one of us every two or three years. And so there was a much smaller group of us competing for her attention. Um, And I also know that very early on, she started telling me that uh, my decisions 
about when to start a family, that she would support whatever decisions I made along the process, that it was never a hesitation and it was just a part of life. And, and that was a really, even though I didn't have, I was pregnant with my son when I defended my dissertation. So I didn't really face that challenge along the way, but it was always nice to know that it wasn't gonna be a problem, that, um, that we would just simply take it in stride because that's what women do. And so I, I found that to be very comforting and very um, encouraging. Um, I'm not sure if that's, I don't know what the experience is working with a male advisor. I don't know if they would tell their students that, you know, I think some of them would, but um, I found that to actually be very encouraging. And I think my students too, um, and Lyneth may be able to say this, but they have found that I don't get phased by personal challenges that they have, <laughs> that it's just like it's life you know, it's fine. Um, you don't have to ask me when you can get married, just get married and we'll figure it out or whatever else is going on in your life. So that's a little bit, I don't want to talk too much. I'll let Lenneth jump in and then we can maybe tackle some of your other questions you had in that. Yeah, I'll just affirm what Beth said. Yes, she does not get phased by the many personal crises. Her students <laughs> For me, a slightly similar narrative to Beth's, um, my undergrad, all of the professors in the history department that I worked with were men. I did have a wonderful um, female professor in the English department who I worked with quite closely. But when I went to my master's program, my primary supervisor was a man. Um, and I actually did not think about the gender of my supervisor when I chose to work with Beth. I thought about what I wanted to do with my degree, where I wanted to be, what I wanted to be working on. And um, when I met Beth, there was a really immediate kind of click, at least that's what that's what I felt. I mean, she can counter or not, but I mean, we had coffee when I was doing my interview at mm -hmm. Maine. It was a pretty much immediate, no, this would be a really good relationship, both professionally and personally. So for me, it came down to feeling like Beth was the supervisor who would best help me grow, not just in my studies, but as a well-rounded human. I will say I was not, I did not work on women and gender when I started working with them. Mm -mm. It was not something I'd done any work on in my undergraduate degree and my master's. And for me, one of the biggest impacts of working with a female supervisor was the attentiveness to women and gender that just comes with living in that sphere, with living some of those experiences. It dramatically changed the trajectory of my own scholarship, the trajectory of my teaching, and it was a really beneficial thing. And again, I think some um, male supervisors might have also provided that, but I'd been working with one at St. Andrews quite closely and had never had a push to think about gender as a category of analysis. And so I think there's something valuable about whether you work with a female supervisor or not, having someone who can push you to think about categories of analysis that you yourself may not think about. For both of us, for both Beth and I, I think we do live in that category of analysis. Yeah. That's our experience. But I think there's something to be said for those perspectives that then enrich your own scholarship through that. The advantages of working with Beth and having a supervisor who I could travel with, go to our- Yes. <laughs> One of the really unique things was I was able to travel with Beth for my first archival experience. We stayed together. That was, I walked to Lynneth's speed off. I remember she only brought one pair of shoes to the UK. It never occurred to me to tell her she needed to take more than one pair of shoes. And we walked like, I don't know, like six and a half miles the first day in London, looking at all these different churches. I was looking at pulpits anyway. And then I realized at the end of the day that she had blisters all over her face. <laughs> 
So she borrowed a pair of my shoes the next day. <laughs> You've got a great picture of me sitting in front of St. Paul's, like bandaging, yes. bandaging her feet. Anyway, but there we are. Experiences like that never would have been possible with a male supervisor. You just can't do those same sorts of travel experiences, that same sort of like intense mentorship that at certain periods of the PhD was almost 24 um, seven. And that, that was a huge advantage that I never considered. You know, that's such a good point and, and rings very true to my own experience about when I was in seminary, I was the only woman in my degree mm-hmm. program, my philosophy of religion yep. degree program. And my, the other professors in the program were, they were all men and all the other students were men. And I would notice that they would, you know, text each other. They would hang out, they'd go play golf. Right. They would go get, you know, coffee, all these different things. Um, but I always felt a little bit excluded from that and not necessarily because of some like weird Billy Graham rule or something, right. but it's just that there is a different dynamic that they are able to, you know, travel together in a way that probably wouldn't be as appropriate for me. So what I've also noticed though, is now that I'm in a teaching position, I, this is nowhere near having a super a PhD student, but I have a grader. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I asked for a list of really qualified people and top of the list was a, a female student. And so I chose her and, um, what I've noticed is I've just loved developing that relationship because we were able to do just a grading marathon late one night, bringing snacks mm-hmm. and everything to keep the morale high, you know, and just being able to have that kind of mentor type relationship is just really unique and valuable. And so I think if anything, that's another reason why having more academic women um, who are able yes. to do these kinds of mentorships is, su- is just so crucial. Well, and I think so too. I mean, one of the things we work on at Baylor is encouraging students to have a multiple mentorship model. And so you can think about if you, even if your primary supervisor is a male scholar in your field, um, hopefully there are other women in your department who can serve as a multiple um, mentorship model. And so that's one of the things that I've always kind of tried to do with my students, with students in our department and even in other areas now that I'm in the grad school um, who have male supervisors that I can come alongside them and kind of pick up maybe the the spaces that their male advisor can't fill. And so it works really well. And I think, you know, when I, and I do have male students, in fact, I have one PhD um, student who is male and I feel like the, and I work closely with a male scholar in the religion department who kind of picks up that slack for me too. Um, So I think it's good. I think this is, we need both women and men in order to deal with our students who are both women and men um, in the academy. I love that collaboration that you have as well, mm-hmm. because my supervisor, I mean, I could sing his praises all day long. I had such a wonderful PhD experience uh, studying under him. I really flourished a lot, uh, but he was one of the first to tell me, it's good for you to seek out older women academics. They yes. can provide something for you that I can't. And that's mm-hmm. a really good thing. Yes, no, that's great. And I think where where I'm situated right now, early career, I'm in year four mm-hmm. at my job. It's it's kind of this in between space where I'm definitely looking for and keeping an eye on some of the women who work at my university who are farther along, have more experience, mentorship within this context. But I'm also realizing that it's important to have mentors at all career and life stages because there's a different way that I can engage with and mentor students who are making grad school decisions, being quite close to the process of that myself than someone who's been here for 20 to 30 years. But at the same time, I don't have that experience that they do. So I think thinking about not just 
collaboration with mentors between men and women, but collaboration between different right. careers. Because there's a lot that people at each career stage can offer to kind of help bring up the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And you often look at the person who's one step ahead of you mm-hmm. when you're kind of projecting your own self or thinking about next steps, you look at who's one or two steps ahead of me. And of course you always have an eye on people who are farther down the field, but it's so helpful to have those people who are just living your next step or what your next step could be. Yes. No, I have, um, there are some women at Baylor that I often will reach out to. In fact, I have done so with one pretty recently and just said, Hey, this is what's going on in my career and life. What advice do you have for me? And I, I mean, it's so beneficial for us to be able to have those types of connections. Definitely. So moving on to some of the other things that I wanted to pick your brain about, I know that there's been a lot of progress made when it comes to including more women in academic spaces. Mm -hmm. There's been more women who have had the chance to move through their education and then be actually present and a participant in these academic spaces. There's more women who are being hired. So we can definitely celebrate a lot of great progress Mm -hmm. in this area. However, there still are some lingering obstacles. And I'm wondering if you guys could share a little bit about what you think those obstacles are. Yes. So I'll just start off with some that are just very small and Mm -hmm. ones that colleagues and everyone in the academy being aware of can kind of help address and then go to some of the bigger ones. But I think some of the small ones are just that culturally people are still not as used to giving women the same titles and respect as men. Yes. So I have a number of students each semester who it takes me all semester to get them to stop calling me Miss or Mrs. My male colleagues do not struggle with this to anywhere near the same degree. And this is, it's a small thing. It's not at the end of the day, a huge deal, but it does imply like this baseline authority, which can get really challenging to navigate in the classroom setting, to navigate when dealing with things that come up. And I think for women in the academy, one of the ongoing challenges is trying to balance cultivating a culture of respect towards women's authority, women's titles, women's work, Um, while at the same time, not making, not just trying to reproduce a hierarchy that can sometimes get quite toxic with the power structures involved. Just a really simple practical thing about this. I've noticed that a lot of early career male colleagues are far more likely to tell students, oh, just call me by my first name. Yes. That's so unhelpful to early career Mm -hmm. women. That that's just a baseline thing. Um, But it also then trickles out to which students which professors do students come to with just the repeated questions that maybe they need to be working through on their own? And again, not in the sense of students shouldn't come to you with emotional needs, but some of the questions that I get are just baseline. I don't know how to log into my email that they would not go to the email professor with. So thinking about cultivating a culture of respect that then allows both men and women to carry kind of equal emotional workloads. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And then just for Christian women in the academy, especially, I think, especially early career, and then as they move into mid-career, raise a family, et cetera, you're kind of caught between two worlds. You're caught between this expectation in academic culture that academia will be your life, it will be your profession, this will be the thing that you will put everything in. And then in the church, the expectation is still often that you will be the one who primarily cares for the family, who like prioritizes children, prioritizes these things. They're dramatically different expectations, dramatically different sets of um, priorities. 
And there's not a way to win that game. And so it puts Christian women in the academy in this position of constantly trying to do two full-time jobs. Yeah, no, I'm so with Lyneth on that. I remember when um, I had both of my children, which my daughter is now 11. So, you know, it's been over 10 years now and my son's 17. But when I had both my children, there was no clear maternity policy at Baylor. And Baylor is one of the largest, you know, Christian universities um, in the U.S. and certainly one of the largest you know, flagship Baptist university. And there is no clear, there was no clear maternity policy at the time. There is now came into place, but I remember doing things like, you know, I didn't have, a, when I had my son, I shared an office and there were no rooms for breastfeeding. And I went back to work three weeks after my son was born, after I had a C-section, I was crazy. Um, and I would, I would, go and sit in my car and use my breast pump. And my mom would bring my, would bring my son up to me and I would sit and I would nurse him in my car in between because there was no place. And so you kind of think about, I also published my first book while I was doing. <laughs> so, you know, you, it's, it's crazy. If you think about the things women have to do and you think about those, uh, you know, there's also been a recent study. We were actually talking about this in my grad seminar uh, just a couple of weeks ago, that even though I think it's good for parental leave to be offered to both women and men at the same time, the statistics show us that men actually become more productive during paternity, during, you know, um, parental leave, because they spend that extra time on research and publishing, whereas women still get further behind, because they're recovering from surgery, they're having, uh, you know, they're, they're growing a, a tiny human, um, all of these things. And so it's just shows this, there's still this disconnect between what women need to succeed, especially in Christian spaces, where um, statistically women are not promoted. And I mean, this is this huge problem at Christian universities. Um, and so I think it shows that, you know, as at the assistant professor level, there may be much more equity among women and men getting hired and women moving into those roles. But the further you move up the hierarchy, the less there is, the more male dominated it becomes because the challenges for women being held to the same standards at the academy while carrying a disproportionate amount of the work for family and home um, simply keeps women from progressing the way men progress. And I think just the emotional fallout of that too, I don't yet have children, but um, I've had a couple conversations with a friend who's early career and has a child. And she's made a comment that she's had people at her church tell her, we can't believe you put your daughter in daycare already. Yes. People at yeah. academic workplace tell her, we can't believe your daughter's not been in daycare for a year. So yeah. there's no, the emotional burden of what decision am I making wrong and how do I navigate these, I think is something that again, gets overlooked in thinking about the challenges women in the academy still face. There's not a clear good path forward when you have right. different sets of expectations and the emotional weight of grappling with that takes a lot of space that could be spent thinking about research. It does. It does. The, yes. So we'll let you ask more questions, Amber. We could talk about this all day. <laughs> you know, it's so fascinating. And listening to Lyneth and what you were describing as some of the initial obstacles getting into the position and in your first years of teaching, 
I, I was laughing to myself because that's exactly what I've experienced. Um, I was hired along with uh, another guy who was hired um, for, so two positions were filled. And I noticed that none of the students had any trouble calling him doctor. Um, yes. e even though sometimes I've noticed, like you said, my male colleagues are like, oh, just call me by my first name, you know, but it took most of the semester, well, not most of the semester, about half mm -hmm. the semester for students to call me, to not call me Miss Bowen, um, which it's not one of those like, oh, I need to hear you call me doctor kinds of things. Right. It's not right. for just the accolade or, or whatever, but I remember how much it meant to me to meet a woman who had the title doctor. Right. That was huge. That was a model for me mm -hmm. that opened a possibility for me. And so I was always so glad that she went by Dr. So-and-so um, because it just put that out there. And so yes. I think I need my female students as well as my male students to see that. Um, so, but that was definitely an obstacle that I mm -hmm. experienced that I noticed that <laughs> very few other people um, have. The other comment I was going to make is um, about maternity leave policies, because yeah. it absolutely is true that women just carry more of the burden. And even if you're parenting 50-50, you're still the one who's feeding. You're still the one who's growing the baby. Like You're still the one who's recovering. And so there is a particular investment there that's wonderful. One of the pieces of advice that I was given when I was going through the interview stage and deciding if I was going to accept the position that was offered to me was to actually ask what the university's policies right. are mm -hmm. um, with reference to maternity leave and, uh, and, and family more generally. And one thing that I've been so encouraged about uh, Redeemer, it, so we're in Canada, so we have some legal things that are a little mm -hmm. bit different, but uh, you get an entire year of mat leave. So yes. it's basically like, don't come back, don't call, put an away message on your email. We'll it's like see Europe, you yeah. Yeah, and it's so great because, and I see my colleagues, I see other women who are here and in other universities around who are actually having babies yep. because you have that entire year. And you can split some of it with the father, so you can just do paternity leave, but you have an entire year. So that's really, really helpful. And it doesn't put the pressure of, I need to rush back to yeah. my Three weeks after I've given birth. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that happens is even when you go on mat leave for a year, that doesn't delay your tenure track. Mm -hmm. So you can even drop down to part-time because you now have a baby if you want to do that. And that won't extend your tenure track, which is just remarkable to me. So it's I think remarkable. It's one way that my university has sought to help women, yes. um, who have to run at a different pace for men, but nonetheless, who are contributing in, in ways that are truly invaluable to the institution. No, that, that's amazing. If you, I mean, I think about, I look back at my uh, career and I look at my publications and I see after the birth of both my children, there is a like, you know, you kind of think you project your publications out. And so you walk into it, you have a child, you have publications going out, you have, you know, I had a book coming, I had two books actually that came out back to back. Um, but then you always notice this lag, 
like this year or two where you just don't have very much. And that's sort of that catching up because while those first couple of years, it's really hard to start new research and finish research projects. And so there always is a lag or often there is a lag on women's CVs um, who don't have that time. I mean, I can think about it if I actually applied for research leave when my daughter was a year and a half got a semester of research leave from Baylor, and then I applied for a year-long sabbatical grant that I got for the next year. Um, and so I, and that really saved me because it gave me, it allowed me to kind of step back and uh, be, a, you know, allowed me to actually be with my child when she was younger, but it also allowed me the space to catch up on publications. And so I, you know, and, but I had to apply externally to get that. And that would be such an easy way for institutions to support women like that, even by mm -hmm. just helping the you know research office or whatever, helping women yes. get these kinds of grants that mm -hmm. even if internal to your institution, you don't have a year long maternity leave, but to be able to help um, provide assistance and getting that external funding is huge. It's huge. Yeah, well, so we've talked about more of these practical lingering obstacles for women in, in the academy. I'm wondering about more of the cultural and ideological obstacles that uh, that's, that are still there. Obviously, a lot of change has been made, um, a lot of progress we've seen, but what, what are some of the things that are just still sticking in women and men's minds that kind of inhibit women from feeling like they can really throw themselves into an academic calling? I mean, one of them, I think, is what Lenneth already mentioned, is these this double burden on especially I mean, women always have a double burden, but I think um, maybe Christian women have a triple burden. I don't know, because we have these gendered expectations um, that our priority will be home and family. And when you're, I mean, I actually remember this, this was one of the conversations I had with my advisor in grad school, um, because she knew, I mean, she never really cared that I was from a conservative or that I was saw differently with her. I mean, she was, she was actually very broad-minded. Um, but I remember her having this conversation with me when she realized that I was probably going to stay in ministry with my husband. And she was like, you know, being a professor is a vocation. And she was like, and I kind of see that you might have two vocations in your life. And she said, that's going to be hard. And, um, and so, I mean, I always, it was, I really appreciated her stepping in and acknowledging that. And it also, it opened up conversations that my husband and I had where I was like, look, this is my job. This is your job. And we'll, you know, we, I, I can do things, some things, but there are times in my life that I can't because this is my job. And he was very understanding about it, but I don't know if I would have had that conversation with him. If my advisor hadn't sat down and sort of had that conversation with me, you know, thinking about it vocationally. Um, but I know a lot of women who aren't in marriages that are that understanding and then if you combine it with the pressures that you feel at church and you even like, I mean, I had a student that I mentored for a long time and the pressure that she received from her mother <laughs> when she was wanting to go back to school and get her doctorate. And her mother was essentially like, I'm not going to help you with childcare because I think you're making a wrong decision. And I mean, it was just incredible that that emotional burden that she carried where she felt like she wasn't doing um, and she didn't she didn't go back to school um, because really because of her mother. So, I mean, I just I think about I mean, it's those types of emotional burdens on women um, are are heavy. And 
they certainly contribute, I think, to women often not, you know, we call it the leaky pipeline to women not progressing in the field. Thinking about other cultural and kind of ideological expectations, I think another big one that comes to mind, and I'll be clear here, my department that I'm in at Anderson is great. My male colleagues are excellent and have not done this, but I've seen this elsewhere on campus. I've seen this with colleagues at other universities. There is still a cultural expectation that women are better at certain types of tasks. And those tasks tend to be heavily service oriented. They tend to be organizational. They tend to be things that take tremendous amounts of time and energy, but do not end with a publication credit or with a flashy news release. They tend to be the things that have to be done to run the university, but at the end of the day, bring very little professional payoff. And the number of times that even in the couple of years I've been working full-time in academia, I've seen someone delegate one of those things to a woman because they'll do it on time, they'll do it competently, and then say, well, this male colleague just isn't good at it. No, they could be good at it. It's a culturally learned incompetence that they've chosen not to take on, but that then places this on the women. And that's a cultural expectation that doesn't seem to have as much pushback on changing as some of these other things, because it is often framed as well, individual difference. This person's better at this than this. And some of the instances in which I've seen this play out, I'll look at the male colleague involved and be stunned. I'm like, you are every bit as capable of sending these reminder emails based on like an Outlook calendar reminder, has I am or has my female colleague is. This is not a difference in skill set. This is a difference in cultural expectations and a difference in willingness to take on the types of service that have historically and culturally been delegated to women that then, as Beth said, keep women from being able to do the things that will move you forward. I, I love that, Lena. It's hard for me not to do a group because um, that phrase, this uh, cultural incompetence that, you know, that this culturally constructed incompetence that we allow. Um, and and I, I mean, I think that is exactly right. Uh, I see this all the time. And in fact, even me being in administration, um, I, you know, I, in some ways I've really loved it because I've learned how the university works and I will always now know how the university works. And I wish I had known some of this stuff when I was early career, uh, because it's been so beneficial for me to learn how the university works. Um, but at the same time, I've really benefited from having some male colleagues at Baylor who have always tried to make sure that I still had time to do research and writing because they think that's important for me and not letting me get bogged down in some of these tasks. And in fact, even like my dean in the graduate school, he's very good. He's like, Beth, you don't need to spend your time doing that. He's like, other people... Other men can do that and you don't need to do it. Um, but if you don't have somebody like that who steps in, who has more authority over those other people and says, no, Beth's not going to do that. I mean, he stepped in before on committees where he's like, no, Beth doesn't need to do that. She doesn't need to spend her time there. Um, if women don't have that, then they end up doing those things, just like what Lynneth said, especially when the power structures um, keep women, I mean, you know, when there are not women in those power structures to speak. Or, and this goes also with, with people of color, this exactly thing. I mean, you can think about all of the people of color at universities who get put on every committee because everybody wants them and there's nobody to stop in and say, no, we, this person needs to focus on other things. Um, so insightful and also accurate. I mean, 
culturally constructed incompetence. Such a great, great phrase because I think it applies to both women and men. Like there's a lot of these culturally constructed incompetencies in men, but then there can also be the same for women just in terms of expectations of roles that women are supposed to play as well. I, I will add, because there, there's a sense in which all three of us are in different seasons in life. Um, Beth, you're married with children. Lyneth, you're married with no children yet. I'm not married and I have no children. <laughs> so thinking about it from the perspective of a single person going into the academy. So I don't necessarily have the strain of like the husband who's saying, no, I'd rather you not do this. I don't have the strain of the you know, having to juggle nursing a baby while also trying to publish a book. But I think one of the ideological obstacles for someone like me is just this perception that your career is going to cost you your life, really, the possibility of having a marriage and family and those sorts of things. Whereas I've never met a male peer who's ever once had that thought <laughs> that maybe my career could hinder or cost me my life. Um, or if I really want to prioritize marriage and family, then I need to actually not pursue this career. That's never something I've heard a man say, but it's something that has haunted me my entire education experience and continues to haunt me in my early career experience, that two things seem to be mutually exclusive. And whereas I know that they're not because I look at people, I mean, even in this conversation <laughs> that prove that that's not the case at all. And that there's a sense in which academics and family life can be mutually beneficial for one another. Um, there's a kind of flexibility in the academy that you have that really does allow you to, to be a mom in many ways. And then there's ways that being a wife and a mom and having just a normal life contributes even to your scholarship. So they're, they're not mutually exclusive, but there is very much this stigma that still exists that if it's a career woman, then she's ambitious and she's not going to want to slow down to be able to have the wife and the to be a wife and a, a mother. Um, and that's something that I think plagues, it has definitely plagued me, but also other single women academics that I know who may even have the temptation to slow down or to not pursue opportunities because they feel like every opportunity they take or every growth in their career is just going to make the life stuff even more out of reach. And I will say, I think I was not married my first year in this job. I was single for most of graduate school. Um, and there are different and equally difficult pressures at each of the life stages you mentioned. Um, my first year as an assistant professor, I had a very negative experience with someone who assumed that because I was a single woman, I didn't have responsibilities and therefore I could take on all of the service that needed to be done because I didn't have other things in my life. And so even beyond the tension you're expressing, Amber, about is this opportunity cost of vocation and academics going to cost me this personal life that you're right, I don't believe I've ever heard a male colleague express those fears. Um, there's also then the fact that depending on your life stage, there are different assumptions for how much work you can take on as a woman that again, I did not see placed on my single male colleagues. I did not see my single male colleagues being told that, well, you're single, you don't have a life, so you can do all of this service. Um, so it is interesting too that life stage for women seems to play a much larger role in career opportunities, expectations, and fears 
in a lot of ways than it does for their male peers. I remember when I found out that happened to Lyneth and I was extremely upset. Um, I, I can tell you, uh, first of all, that she didn't tell me immediately it was going on. <laughs> and then secondly, that that would actually happen to her. And one of the things that I've actually noticed um, too, being where I am in the academy, is that many times women who have had really hard experiences going through, you know, have faced more challenges than men and have done all the things um, while still having a family and children that sometimes their attitudes towards younger women are like, well, I had to do it. So you should have to do it too. And, and that is such, you know, I'm always, it's like the same sort of thing. It's like, why does past oppression make current oppression okay? It doesn't. Um, it, so it seems to me that this is one of the things that women need to be intentional about making sure that the women who are coming up behind us don't have to face those same challenges that we did because they do not contribute to flourishing. Um, and at Christian universities, they do not contribute to the atmosphere that we want to create. Um, and I think this, you know, the same goes for, for single women. I mean, this is, um, there these expectations that single women are in a different category um, than other women the, in the academy too. Again, this is something I'm, I don't know if it's enhanced in Christian circles um, rather than out in non-Christian universities. I feel like it is, feel like in, in religious circles that it's often enhanced a bit more, um, but I don't know that for sure. I, it may be that single women at um, universities in general face these same types of challenges. Um, but I do think that there are sort of different expectations often put on women who aren't who don't have families, um, don't carry those burdens. And so, I mean, I have heard before in meetings being like, oh, she would be good for this committee because she doesn't have family, you know, whereas, and I'm just like, that's not why we put somebody on a committee. <laughs> so, I mean, these are very real, these are very real everyday um, occurrences still in the academy that affect women in ways that they don't. I mean, I've never heard in a committee meeting somebody suggesting we put a man on a committee because he's single. Never heard that. So these are these types of gendered expectations um, that women are always still defined by whether or not they have family. They're, de they're defined by life cycle stage, even within the academy. Well, can I throw out one final question for us? One of the things that I've heard, uh, particularly recently, but in the last several years, for sure, is male peers or uh, other other men in the in the field who make comments about how this day and age, it's actually easier to get a job as a woman, or that you can have a male who has all sorts of publications and a stacked CV, but that person will get passed over for a woman who may have less. So there is this idea that there's actually kind of a, a privileging of women right now over men in terms of hiring. And I'm wondering if you guys could speak to that. Do you, do you think that that's true? And if so, why? If not, why? 
it seems to me, I mean, on the one hand, what we're talking about here is equity. And there's a lot of discussion about diversity, inclusion, and equity. And equity means that we look at women, at people's standpoints. Um, and we realize that because women and people of color often have more challenges and more things that keep them as progressing as quickly as men, that we need to take those things into account um, when we are considering for hiring. And so, I mean, this, there is that, I think there is more attention to equity, which is a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing that there is more, we can't change the university until we change the university. Um, so there is more attention being paid to that. However, at the same time, in most fields, um, there is still a considerable gender um, difference between who gets the jobs, especially who gets the higher ranking jobs. And what we find while there may be a lot of women and in some areas there may even be more women in lecture positions and in lower and even in, in adjunct positions, um, there are fewer women who are moving up the pipeline, being hired in at those higher level like associate position um, and even tenured positions and even making it to tenure track. So there is still a significant disproportion. Um, you know, one of the, the factors at Baylor, one of the percentages at Baylor um, when, you know, like in 2014, 2015, was that less than 18% of women at Baylor made it to, um, you know, advanced to tenure or, or full professor. I mean, it was it's horrific number that, you know, women get stuck at these lower levels. Um, so I... I don't think the academy is privileging women. I think the academy is paying more attention to equity and trying to help balance it. But at the same time, it, there is still a long way to go um, for women to, to move forward in these types of categories. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard because, you know, I, I have a white male son. And so I can think about, you know, he might face some of these challenges moving into the academy, but at the same time, these are the challenges that we all face, you know, moving into the academy. Um, we are always competing with people who are really good. And there's a variety of reasons that different people get jobs. And, um, and when you look at it overall, women are still getting fewer of the jobs than men. First of all, agree with echo everything Beth said. I would also add, I think there's a lot of presumption in that statement for not having been on the committees and not having seen the CVs. Um, I would kind of add two things that I think might be worth weighing and thinking about this. Um, first, I think like we've talked about for women, their CVs often have much broader service categories. And I think increasingly has the role of a university faculty member has become far more tripartite with research, teaching, and service. I think that looking just at publications isn't a good metric as to what is the better candidate. For my specific job, um, I'm at a teaching-focused liberal arts institution, more publications would not have made me the strongest candidate for this job. What helped make me a stronger candidate was pedagogical training, was mentoring and teaching experience, and extensive university service. And so I think it's worth asking, well, holistically, how are they comparing candidates? And holistically, are we just starting to give more weight to and value the type of work that women have always been asked to do on search committees? Um, 
our search committee is just starting to actually value women's work. And is that what's making it feel like there's a switch? Um, and I think the other thing I would highlight is when you look at departments and hires, oftentimes a lot of the new hires may be women or people of color, but when you look at the faculty who are full professors, who are research professors, professors emeritus, they are definitely not in those categories. And so I think there's something to be said too, as we work towards an academy in which we have multiple perspectives, multiple voices, multiple life experiences represented in our faculty, there is a corrective period where there needs to be intention in hiring in the people who have not had those jobs. And that doesn't mean that that's always how that will be. But right now, if you look at a lot of departments, the older faculty members are all men. And so what they need is not to, they need to hire in people who bring different perspectives. And that can look different in a lot of ways. That can be a different socioeconomic perspective, a different religious perspective, um, perspective of a woman, perspective of a person of color. But I think it's worth noting that if we truly believe that perspective and individual voices matter in how we teach, we need to hire like that matters. Yeah, I might just add really quickly. One of the things I miss about Lineth is how perceptive she is. And I think she's right that um, women's work, what women contribute to a university has not always been valued um, as worth promoting. And now the academy is beginning to realize that uh, we, while we have to have standards, that those standards are going to look different. Um, you know, there has to be there has to be room within those standards um, to account for different backgrounds and different ways that people approach. And so some universities have actually moved towards um, tenure promotion um, portfolios instead of just, you know, essentially that are kind of put not just equal weight, but kind of allow you to talk more about the things that you have done. If you haven't done quite as many publications, then what are the other things that you have used to contribute to the university life that are just as valuable? Um, so while I do think it's important for women to keep publishing and to keep moving forward in research, I mean, I, we've got to keep doing that. At the same time, we also have to make room for women to be recognized for the work that they have always done that has always been undervalued. So true. And, and I think too about situations that I've seen of someone who's actually gotten tenure, uh, several people I know who've gotten tenure who have not had a lot of publications. I mean, just barely met the requirements for tenure, if not <laughs> didn't meet them at all. Um, other guys who have nonetheless gotten tenure. And so, but you always hear, or I hear complaints about people saying, oh, this woman got promoted just because she's a woman, but hasn't actually done any of the work. And I just think when you look across the board and you see what's actually going on, that's that's not exactly accurate. I don't remember where the study is from, so I probably shouldn't mention it, but um, I read a great study about the fact that as more women enter into a profession, pay plummets, job security plummets. And so in talking about this very issue of more women are getting jobs in academia, well, it goes hand in hand with the causalization of academic labor, with the rise of adjuncts as the primary teaching force, with the loss of tenure track positions, the demotion of tenure, this like proportionate decrease in pay relative to um, inflation and cost of living. So I think it's also worth weighing as we have more women being hired on, 
are they being hired on into jobs that are valued the same as the ones that men 10 years ago were hired into? And if the answer is no, the issue is not that we're hiring more women. The issue is that we're, again, devaluing the work that women are doing. Well, this has been a really fun conversation with you guys. I uh, wish we could have done this over coffee, but maybe we'll be able to do that one day. Thank you both for joining me, for um, bringing your insight and your experience to this conversation. And I hope it um, is encouraging for women as well as men um, as we think about the issue of women in the academy. So thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Thanks Amber. Amber.